chapter 29, verse 1. So Jacob moved on and came to the land of the eastern people. And he saw in the field a well and three flocks of sheep lying beside it, because the flocks were watered, um, watered from that well. Now a large star of co- stone covered the well, and when all the flocks were gathering there, the shepherds would roll the stone off the mouth and the well and the water and the sheep. So all these shepherds are hanging around this well, and it takes several people to move it off. And Jacob is staying there, and he's going to be asking these shepherds a lot of questions. Like, hey, why don't you get water? And they're going to be giving short responses, like, because we wait for everybody to come. And, oh, do you know Rach or the Laban? No, we don't. And you get this sense that they don't want to talk to him, and they don't like him, but he keeps asking all these questions. Now, you get this sense that this communicates the idea that he's a stranger in the land, and they don't want to talk to him because he doesn't belong to the land. But you also get this sense that this guy who has been a guy who hardly ever left his tent and his mother's side his entire life is now like hundreds of miles away from home, is desperate to find somebody and talk to somebody he knows. And so you get this sense that he's definitely, which exasperates all the more his need to be with people and talk to them when these people won't even talk to him. And so you see this desperation that builds up. And so then he sees Rachel coming and they say, there you are. There's Rachel Laban's daughter, and you almost get this sense, like, leave us alone and go talk to her. That's the person you're looking for. And when he sees her, he immediately rushes over, and he's going to manhandle this stone all by himself off the well. We're told that it takes several men to do this, but he just grabs it and goes, raw, and moves it off like he's in trying to impress her. This is, and then he throws himself down at her feet and begins to weep and kiss her and says, I'm your cousin. And you're like, awkward. <laughs> you imagine like your mom sends you as a woman to get water and you go out and this guy just like throws himself and begins to cry. And, but the idea is that this has been very emotional for him. Now, you may seem funny at first, but think about like being hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home. You've had to run away. You can't contact anybody you know. And you're completely alone in a state where you know nobody and you don't even know how to talk to home. That would be very emotional and very hard, even for the non-emotional. Remember, there's no Skyping. There's no, like, iPhones. There's, like, he hasn't talked to his family for over three weeks, and he's never been further than probably two miles ever because people typically didn't travel more than 10 miles in their lifetime in the ancient world, let alone for a home person to go this way from family and knowing will he ever see his family because he didn't leave on the best terms. So to see somebody who's at least family would be incredibly emotional after this long journey of not having anything either. She goes back and she tells Laban that he's here and Laban rushes out happy to see him. Laban has a better idea of who this guy is than Rachel because Laban knows Rebecca, his sister, being married off. Now remember, the first impression we got of Laban was he saw the bling bling of Rebecca and the gold and all that kind of stuff. And so he comes in and he's happy to see Jacob, probably thinking Jacob has got tons of money because he's from Abraham. Oh, how he's going to be disappointed that this guy's coming in with nothing. Laban says, Jacob, should you work? So they've been there for a while. And he's staying with them and things seem to go well. And then verse 15, it says, Laban said to Jacob, should you work for me for nothing because you are my relative? Tell me what your wages should be. So... The idea here is that he's been working, trying to probably help out. I'm staying with Laban. He's taking care of me. I don't really know him. I mean, he's family, but it's not like I know him. 
So he's trying to help out, work around the farm, and Laban realizes, you know what? I mean, just because you're family doesn't mean I shouldn't be paying you. Name your wages. I'll give them to you. Okay, but this is where we find out that Jacob has his eye on something else. Rachel. Now we're told that Leah's eyes were tender, but Rachel was incredibly gorgeous. Okay, now here's what you must realize. Some of your translations say her eyes were dull or weak. That may not be the best understanding. It's very difficult to know what's being communicated. The idea is that they were soft. The Hebrew word really communicates the idea of soft or tender. Now, some translators have taken that to the reality of, well, if they're soft or tender, then that must mean that there's no sparkle in her eye, no like energy or excitement. And the sparkle in the eye was a very sought-after trait in the ancient world and women. And so if they're soft or tender, that's not there. But if that was true, they'd be contrasting that with, but Rachel had that, if that was what Jacob was really looking for. But the idea of soft and tender has more of the idea of when we think of tender, soft eyes, we think of something beneficial, something good. And as you get to know later on, Leah is going to actually have the better character than Rachel. It could be that Leah is not attractive at all, but her character and personality is great, and Rachel's gorgeous. Or it could be that Leah is good-looking, but not as gorgeous as Rachel. But the point, no matter what it is, is not, is the point is that Rachel is gorgeous. And no matter what Leah is, she is nothing in comparison to Rachel when Rachel's standing next to her. But what may be the thing that really stands out about her is her personality and character. Because if the eyes are the window to the soul and tender and soft eyes communicate a lot, there's something that's there. But Rachel, Jacob doesn't look at the eyes. He's looking at the body. And that's what he notices. And so he says, I will work for your daughter, Rachel. Now, Typically, the son-in-law would present a bride price to the father, give him money, like the servant did to get Rebekah. But Jacob has nothing. He has nothing to offer. But what he does have to offer is work. So he says, I will work seven years. Now, this is a ridiculous amount of money. Right? This is typically, the Deuteronomy will later forbid a man to pay more than 50 shekels for a bride. And even 50 shekels is so high that if anybody lived in that culture, they would probably tell you no guy would offer anybody 50 shekels for any woman no matter what. I mean, that's really expensive. Given how much a day worker would be paid in that time period, Jacob is offering 70 to 80 shekels for Rachel which is way over what Deuteronomy will forbid, which he doesn't have the law yet, so you don't hold him there. But 50 is way more than what any man would offer for any woman, no matter what. That was considered exorbitant. That's like what Bill Gates is going to offer for somebody. Okay, not an everyday normal person. So this says he wants Rachel. But you don't bid that high right off the bat either, which means he's desperate for her. 
knows that Laban says, I will give her to you. He never uses Rachel's name, which means he's providing a legal loophole to give him somebody else later, which means he's already negotiating in such a way that he can hold his options open. And then we're told that he worked for him, but the seven years just felt like a day because of his love for Rachel. (laughs) That's pathetic. So here's the reality. What's interesting is it never says anything about Rachel liking him ever. It could be both ways, but why does the narrator never point that out? There's no romance here. There's no Rebecca was excited to see Isaac. There's just Jacob's in lust. And all he can think about is Rachel all the time. And so he worked seven years. At the end of the seven years, Jacob goes to Laban and says, give me my wife, for my time of service is up. Now, notice that there's no please. There's no politeness in there. It's just, give her to me. Now, as we keep reading, and we keep getting insights into these years, as the daughters and Jacob keep making comments, we're going to find out, as we read further, that you can read back at this and realize that even though the seven years had felt like only a day because of his love for Rachel, the seven years with Laban might have been more of a living hell. (laughs) That Laban is not the guy that you want to really work for. That you get the sense that when he finally flees Laban and he's finally given his chance to vent, he just emotionally vomits on Laban of all the injustices that he's been through and how Jake Laban is a horrible man and done this and cheated and da 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 And you get this sense after seven years of working for Rachel, he's like, I'm done, give her to me, I want her. And he's probably thinking, I'm going to get my wife and I'm going to go back home because that's what I want to do all along. My, wa- my mother's waiting for me. I'm going to go back to my inheritance. I'm done being with you, Laban. Give me my wife. I want to go home. But that's not going to work. And so Laban sees this as an opportunity. Laban throws a feast. Now, typically the way it would work is you would throw a party and have a feast, and then you would consummate your marriage with your wife, and the next six days you would continue to celebrate the wedding. And I think I already mentioned this before. You typically go in the tent, and you come out the next morning, and everybody's like, yay! Okay? And so you do that. So he goes in, and he gets married, And they throw the feast, and then he goes in to sleep with Rachel, but it's not Rachel. It's Leah. And you're like, how did he miss that? Well, one, one, she's wearing a veil that he's not going to be able to see her. She's not allowed to remove the veil until the moment of consummating the marriage. If he's able to see anything, it might be the eyes but we already know that he hasn't been paying attention to anybody's eyes for the last seven years. And then he's also drunk. There's a lot of celebration, a lot of drinking that's going to go on. And then when he goes into the tent, they have no electricity. And so he's not going to know until morning he has been deceived. And notice that he wakes up the next morning, he immediately is shocked and immediately goes to Laban and immediately complains. Now, 
I know we know the story, but think about it from Leah's perspective. Why did Leah go along with this? Well, one, this is a patriarchal society. And you do what the father says. And we're going to learn later. And Laban doesn't really value his daughters. Maybe Jacob has got a mother that's favoring him and a father that's favoring his brother. And there's favoritism and dysfunctionality there. But to Laban, his daughters are just an opportunity to make money. And that's it. They're going to voice that that's how they feel about their father. And obviously, if you're using your daughters to make more money, you don't really value them. So in a patriarchal society, if you disobey a serious direct command of the father, he can have you excommunicated from the tribe. An excommunication from the tribe with no husband, no father, no brother for a woman is pretty much death. At best, she'll die. At worst, she'll be raped and enslaved as a sexual slave by somebody because there's no man to protect her civil rights. And women are not valued by most cultures at that time period. So she either goes along with the deception and is sealed into a relationship with a man who will take care of her, even though he may not be emotionally available to her, or she can die or be enslaved. Not a great choice, but one that I think most people would probably choose the marriage over the other. And so she goes along with it. So she is at her wedding with a girl dreams of. And she's sitting next to a man who hasn't paid attention to her in seven years, thinking that it's her sister. When he goes in the tent and they have sex, he thinks that he's having sex with her sister the entire time. Talk about your dream day. And then he wakes up, and what's supposed to be probably a romantic morning, he looks at you and thinks, oh, crap. And he immediately runs out on you on your dream day, your wedding, your consummation, and complains. Then Jake Laban makes up some crap about, oh, but don't you know we only give the firstborn daughter off first? Really? If that's true, why doesn't Jacob know about this? If that's a cultural norm, that's so cultural norm that this guy should know that. Two, if that was the deal, then why didn't you say, oh, but I can't make that deal with you seven years ago. I give Leah first. This is just an excuse. But notice that Laban can't throw up, or sorry, Jacob can't throw up any defense. Why? Because he has no family. We're continuing to see the consequences of his deception because normally his family would come in and negotiate a deal that would protect him from the other family hurting him and negotiating for a covenant marriage. But because he has no family to protect his civil rights, he has nobody to plead his case against Laban because everybody in the tribe is going to back Laban because he's the patriarch of the tribe. And so he is left completely at the mercy of a corrupt government, so to speak, because he has no government himself to protect his civil rights because he chose to deceive and treat, um, trick his family, and be ostracized from them so he has nobody to protect his civil rights anymore. And God is allowing this to happen because God protects you, but he doesn't protect you from everything. 
because he must reap what he sows. That notice that the deceiver is now becoming the deceived. You reap what you sow. And so he has to just go along with it and hope eventually will work out for him. So Laban works out a second deal and says, you go gay. Well, you work seven years for my one daughter. You have to pay a dowry for both. So you had to work seven more years to get Rachel. But notice the deal. The first deal was work seven years, then get Rachel, which he ends up getting Leah. But now the deal becomes, you've already worked the seven years, so finish the wedding week out. And at the end of the wedding week, then you can marry Rachel. And then the next seven years, you pay off your credit card debt. And he's that desperate to do it. See, if he was really, he could have gotten out of the contract in the seven years. He could have said, this isn't worth it. I'm going back home at any time that he wanted. But now by getting Rachel, now there's no walking away whatsoever because now he's paying off a credit card debt. Once again, put yourself in Leah's shoes. You've had this horrible experience with this man who does not want to be marrying you on your dream wedding day. Now you have to finish your wedding week out knowing that he is going to marry your sister at the end of the week. And so you're sitting next to your husband during your wedding week as he's eyeballing your sister the entire time and never wanting to be with you. At the end of your week, that's the best it's going to get because of the minute that week is over with, he goes to Rachel and you become the ignored one the rest of your life. And so this is what's happening. He's creating a dysfunctional family all over again. Because we don't know what Rachel and Leah's relationship was like, but it's not going to be good, whatever it was from this point on. And so he has created favoritism just like his parents. He learned it from his parents. He's going to favor one woman over the other. He's going to create a dysfunctional rift in his family just like his parents did. He's learning nothing. But here's the other thing. Next week, we're going to develop the character of Leah. Well, we're not. God's going to develop the character of Leah and Rachel. And I'll give you the evidence for it. But for right now, Leah is by far the more godly one. Not perfect, but by far the more godly one. At the end of Genesis... The phrase that pretty much defines the entire book is chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God used for good. And this becomes a statement of God's way of operation, which means if you read that back in, and every scholar will tell you the way that's said and the way that the author, and we'll talk about that when we get there, the way the narrator pushes everything into that phrase it means that you should go back and reinterpret the entire book that way. And then you should read that into all the books that come after that and into your own life. Which means God wanted Jacob to marry Leah. If she tends to be the more godly one, and Jacob seems to be the not godly woman, God, man, then who would God want you to marry? The one that will straighten you out, so to speak. Not that that's the goal, of the job of a woman or a guarantee that it'll work, but you're more likely to be straightened out married to a godly woman than Rachel, who's going to later bring the idols into the family. 
And yet Jacob is so spiritually blind, and he's so blinded by his appetite for what he wants and lust, just like his father, that he plows through the giant sign that God gave him and ignores Leah and goes into polygamy, which he's not supposed to do. And so because he can't see God at work in his life, and he can only see his own desire, he ends up creating a polygamous relationship, a favoritism relationship, and a dysfunctional family. Because he's missing what God is doing. And the warning here in all these stories with Esau, blinded by his lust, that he ignores his birthright. Isaac, blinded by his lust, that he gives the blessing to the wrong person. Rebecca, blinded by her desire that she ends up losing her favorite son. I, Jacob, blinded by his lust that he can't. Desire leads to sin, which leads to death. Maybe not literal physical death, but relational death, family death. Be careful of your desires. And so with Abraham, it was a can he trust God to provide the blessings? For Jacob, can he even see what God is doing at all? And this is how the family begins, as an even more exasperated version of the family that just came from, learning nothing. And then from this point on, it's just going to fall apart. Jacob is not the Bible. Here's all your godly people you should look up to. This is the God. Remember I made this point a while ago. This is the God that's making the point that despite the fact that we're not really righteous, God can still redeem us and use us to redeem other people because it's his character, not our character. Now, hopefully, that will so overwhelm us and change us that we will become holy just like he is holy. But God doesn't wait for that moment. He creates that moment. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Jacob.